good morning, Celebration Church, all of our campuses in Appleton, Stevens Point, and Green Bay. Can we all stand up together? Let's put our hands together in all of our rooms and greet your church family here today. Good to have you and welcome. You're our church family. Good to have you. Let's all join together. Let's say this. This is what we believe here at Celebration Church. Let's say this together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and great to have all of you with us. Welcome, Appleton, Stevens Point, Green Bay, everyone joining us online. Great to have you at Celebration Church today. My name is Bob, one of the pastors at the church, and uh, we just want to take a moment and just say, if you are a veteran, thank you for your service. Happy Veterans Day in all of our rooms. Thank you for your service. You're amazing. Pastor Mark this morning is actually speaking to uh, veterans and their families on this Veterans Day, so very cool to have him out doing that, so thanks for letting him travel. We've got a great message here today, but before we jump into that, today is Mission Sunday, and we're doing some amazing things in our backyard, across our nation, and around the globe with what we do when we talk about missions here at Celebration Church, and your giving is making a huge impact and a big difference 29 of us just got back from Myanmar, and being Mission Sunday, we thought we'd play just a short little recap video so you can take a look at what we did. Let's, let's watch it here this morning. Awesome. Thanks for getting involved with what we do with missions. 
If you'd like to give at the end of the service, uh, you can just grab the envelope that you've got at your chair and just mark specifically missions what you'd like to give to that because when we all jump in together, uh, together we can do a lot. So thanks for giving into that. And then also today is week one of a brand new series we're calling Legacy. We're talking about storing treasures in heaven. We're talking about making a difference in the world. And every year around the season of Advent, Celebration Church comes together to do something big. And this year is just the same, and we are all about accelerating the vision here at Celebration Church that people would come to know God. And we're going to have an offering on December 9th, and we're going to take a, a special offering where we come together. It'll be the biggest offering we take of the year. So I would ask that you prepare, that you pray, that you plan, and jump in and do something as we accelerate what we're doing here. So thanks for jumping in, and let's all put our hands together and welcome Bishop Ed Gungers. He brings the first part in our series. The Lord be with you. Oh, so weak. Let's try it again. The Lord be with you. Beautiful. I always love coming here. Thank you for letting me come. This morning, I, um, I have no screens. I'm doing this analog. And I've got three by five cards, 1982, and uh, an actual Bible. Right, so we're, that's what we're going to do. I, I, when I was writing all my thoughts out on this, uh, on these cards, I, I, it was so weird. I thought, man, this is almost cool. <laughs> so let me read uh, to you from the text we're using this morning out of James chapter two. We're going to be talking about the role of works in our lives. If we ever really do want to leave a legacy, if we ever really want to do, if we ever really want to influence people's lives, the people that are close to us, the people that are around us or further away from us, we've got to do things. We've got to do good that actually leaves a path of legacy. So James weighs in on this. We start in verse 14. And he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them all off in another direction? As the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. 
So we want to focus on this idea of good works and ask some questions about it. I mean, where do they fit in the context of our faith? Are they important for our salvation? Um, does what you do actually matter? James certainly thinks that it does, and he says it explicitly. In the text, it said, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is useless. And then he uses a deeply offensive metaphor. In verse 26, he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We don't hold on to dead things long. Uh, we had a wonderful little dog named Frank. He was our uh, uh, West Highland Terrier, really a great dog. He died. After he died, we didn't leave him in the family room. <laughs> right? Because dead things don't fare well. And they rot, and they smell, and they turn creepy. And James is basically using that offensive metaphor of death to talk about faith that is not accompanied with good works. He calls it dead. It's an abhorrent imagery. How you read James really will depend on your come from, where you're coming from. If you're a Protestant, your interest usually will gravitate around the question of salvation in terms of good works. Uh, the spiritual angst or the spiritual tension in the mind of the Protestant is, is am I saved with its corollary? How do I know whether or not I'm saved? Is it by faith alone? Or must I do good works to secure it? These are the kind of questions that rattle around the Protestant mind. And there are obviously New Testament texts that explicitly say that salvation comes by faith through, or comes by grace through faith, and it's not by works. And so for Protestants, the text like James 2, <laughs> it's gnarly for us. And we can agree with Luther, who in commenting about the James epistle said, quote, it's a right straw epistle having no true evangelical character. He actually wanted to kick it out of the scriptures. Not a fan, right? But there are other come froms when you look at texts like this. You take our Latin co-Christians, the Roman Catholics. They have a different tension, a different angst theologically within this idea about uh, spiritual salvation and how God interacts with us. It's not so much for them about knowing that they're saved, like it's a done deal that it's secured in their mind, but in the Roman mentality and theology, it's more like, am I being saved? Is there any evidence that in the present I'm cooperating with God's action in my life? So works on the Latin view become evidence of the grace of God at work. It isn't salvation that's something that occurred when I prayed, you know, February 7, 2008. But it's more, is it something that's happening right now? Am I cooperating with God? Is his work happening in my life? That's the angst. That's the tension. And this kind of view, this kind of come from, you can understand how it's much more amenable to a text like James 2, which that text affirms and assuages their angst in their issue of salvation, that I must have faith, but I must have it with accompanying works. It tells me something's going on. 
The same is basically true for our Orthodox, our Greek Orthodox co-Christians, uh, with one significant nuance. I mean, they, they certainly see salvation as more of a process than versus an event, like the Latin Catholics do. But their angst is over this issue of the resurrection. Let me explain that. A frequent kind of uh, uh, greeting that you'll hear among the Orthodox, when they meet each other, one Greek Orthodox will say to the other, he is risen as a greeting, like good day, well, he is risen. And the response is, anybody know? He is risen indeed. So they go, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Why do they do that? Because their spiritual angst, their spiritual tension is, is not on the question, am I saved or am I being saved? But the question is, is the risen Christ who's alive right now being seen through my life? Is he being seen through my attitudes? Is he being seen on the way that I work? Is he being seen in the relationships that I have? So here we have the Protestants who basically are concerned about is my salvation in the bag? The Romans who their perspective is is my salvation in the works? But for the Orthodox, they don't think so much on the focus of am I saved or am I being saved because they kind of think that's an unknowable. It's part of what they call apophatic theology is the part that you can't really know much about. But what they are concerned about is, is Christ being seen? So the orthodox reads of James uh, also is more erratic. In other words, it agrees with James when James says, hey, you can't have faith without works because that's dead. And the very faith that's alive has workings which Christ is alive, he should be seen. It kind of parallels with that. So, who's right? Right, you got the Protestants, you got the Latins, you got the Orthodox. Who's right? What if no one has to win here? Right? I mean, what if, what if in some way all of us are right? And what if when we disagree with people that maybe we should just not immediately get rigid and fundamental, kind of fundamentalist rigidity, a Promethean rigidity, right? But maybe we should say, wait a minute, maybe I'm seeing something a little different and that doesn't mean I'm not valid, but maybe there's something valid in those other takes. I mean, I think there is. I mean, take the Protestant view. There's something amazingly wonderful about the view that we belong to Christ, that we know that we belong to Christ, that we're saved, that it's a done deal that we've come by faith and that somehow we've been accepted and that we've been born again and it's not rooted in our works, good works that we've done, or nor are we displaced because of some wrong things that we have done. But somehow it's rooted and grounded in the concept of agape. Agape is that Greek word that talks about the unusual kind of love that God has that is not a reaction to us. The love that God has is based on himself, that he chooses to set value and chooses to set preciousness on you, that he's locked into you and thrown away the key. Romans says it this way, that God proved his love for us, that even while we were still sinners, not even interested in God, Christ acted, God acted in Christ to reach out to us, to welcome us, to open his heart to us where his intended dream come true. When you, when you understand that faith is rooted from that Protestant view and that influence and emphasis, faith brings, it's a place of security. It's a place of confidence. It's a wonderful idea, wonderful concept. But there's also something really wonderful about the Latin view, 
where they think that salvation is kind of a process where we're being saved, that God isn't finished with us because of some prayer we prayed, but that he has a plan to develop us, that our lives matter, that, that somehow he wants us to grow up in the pattern of Christ. In Pauline language, he wants us to move from glory to glory to glory, that there's some way in which we're developing. Uh, when creation is explicated in Genesis, the narrative goes that God forms humanity and he caused, wanted us to be or caused us to be in his likeness and in his image. The Latin phrase is the imago Dei. That somehow we've been imaged to look like God. But the problem in the narrative was something happened where that image was marred. And so in redemption, Christ not only wants to connect with us, but he wants to re-image us in a way we're born again over time instead of in a moment. It's kind of that view. So that somehow we're being transformed from stage to stage so that the image is restored. Second century church father Irenaeus used a Latin phrase that captures this. The phrase is gloria de es vivendo homo. And what it means is the glory of God is a person fully alive. You want to bring glory to God, it's not just believing in God. You want God to be seen and him to be glorified in your life with your children, with the people that you know, the people you work with. It isn't just you believing in God and believing in certain doctrines. It's when you become more fully human where you have some modicum of courage and wisdom and you have some temperance about you and you're a just person and you show kindness and faith and hope and love. These kinds of human things and divine traits that enter into the human life is what will bring glory to God, not just your claims of belief. This is the gift that our Latin family shows us or gives to us, and it shows that we're not just saved for eternity or for over there, but we're being saved for here, and what we do here matters, and it forms who we are as people, which means we can learn to live better and that we can be more human and less crocodile. <laughs> right? What good news that you don't have to be limited by how you were brought up. You don't have to be mitigated, hurt, pulled back, compromised because you had such a bad upbringing. You can actually grow past that. And, and you don't have to be limited by your failures. This means if God is working in us now, that our failures that we have participated in or been victims of do not have to define us. That we can learn by following God how to enjoy life more, how to be peacemakers, right? That's good news. That we can learn how to not be violent about meeting our own needs. That we can strengthen friendships and strengthen connections and that right living, doing good works become like mooring ropes, you know, like on a boat that keeps it from getting beat up on the docks when the water gets all crazy. That somehow our lives can be protected and sustained. And it gives us hope to enter into long-term relationships like raising families or being in careers or not just young love. Young love is wonderful, but old love is sweet. <laughs> I've been married to this woman for 42 years. It's old love, and I love old love. But this, the reason that we can do that is because we have this capacity to cooperate with a God who's saving us, moving in us. That's this gift. And then there's something 
really wonderful about the Orthodox co-Christians. I mean, this nuanced focus where they don't even make faith about my salvation at all. I mean, they're not thinking, am I saved, am I being saved? But their focus is on simply reflecting the resurrected Christ into the world. That, that, that the reflection means it's not just from us or about us. Those of you that you remember when you were a kid, you probably thought that the moon had light. And at some point in your life, you were talking with someone about it and said the moon is... Well, actually, the moon doesn't have light, somebody told you, which surprised you. What do you, mean, what do you mean it doesn't have light? It doesn't have any light. Well, what is the moon? It's a big rock. No light involved. All the moon really has, craters and a dark side. That's it. And, and really, if we're honest about it and really examine you, all you really have are craters and a dark side. <laughs> so the only hope, what this view does is it says, look at all you have to do is find the place, position like the moon, to find the place where you can reflect borrowed light. This isn't, good works is not about you performing, about you earning something, no, nothing of that like that. Good works is about you being in a relationship with the living Christ who came out of death like you've been brought out of death. And that somehow as a result of that connection, you're doing good works. <laughs> this suggests that good works are not powered by you alone. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then Jesus keeps talking. And a few verses later, he says, whoever lives by the truth comes to the light. Why? So we can borrow it. So that it is seen plainly that what he has done, the good that he has done, has been done through God. This points to the supranatural aspect and nature of faith. That it isn't just you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not just me. I mean, I'm cooperating with it, yes, but it isn't just me. 2 Corinthians, he says something similar, but we have this treasure, this ability of God to do things in jars of clay, talking about physicality, this physical body, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. <laughs> See, faith on this view is a living dynamic jammed with good works which have been empowered by God versus some event that happened back there at an altar. It's more than that. So, if all of these views have merit, the Protestant, the Latin, the Orthodox, if they all have merit, what, what, what is our takeaway? And I think they do have merit. What's our takeaway concerning good works? I want to give you two quick takeaways and then a couple of applications that you can walk out of here with. The two takeaways. One is, your works matter. What you do matters. Not to earn salvation, but to grow in it. And to reflect our connection with the resurrected Christ. Your works matter. James is challenging us not to settle for belief alone. Not to settle for intention alone. I mean, belief can be in you, your intentions can be strong, you can have all these spiritual longings, but if there are not works involved, it isn't enough. You won't change the world. You will not leave a legacy. It will not form you. The only thing that forms you are the things that you do. There's so many people, I bet you can think of, maybe yourself, 
where you say, oh, I, I believe in God and I want to do the right thing. I have all this intention, to, but your life is just not coming together. Their lives are just falling apart. They're not, they're not, things are always broken. Why? Because even the demons believe. It's not enough. You've got to turn your belief into a place where you're actually doing something differently for it to have power in your life. The second takeaway, <laughs> and this one's, this one's a bit confusing, disheartening in a way. The second, the second takeaway is that I'm just confused by the whole subject of good works. Because if I only did good works, it would make me feel better, but I don't just do good works. I do bad works too. Right? Um, which reminds me of that gospel story where Jesus is talking about the judgment of the people and he says he divides everyone up in sheeps and sheep and goats remember that story and when he does that he it's interesting because when he it's the only place in the gospels where Jesus actually talks about the last day judgment right and the way he talks about it is he basically is saying they're being judged based on what they did if they fed the you know hungry and clothed the naked and visited the sick I mean all these things he lists and he says y you didn't do it and you did it and he separates them based on good works now that's not to say that that the only thing that we're going to be judged on is good works I don't think that's true but I do think we should be a little nervous about it there should be a little fear in our heart about how things will pl play out and sometimes when we just say, well, you just, we just made Jesus Lord. Just remember, Jesus throws grenades in a lot of our thinking. I mean, he's the one that says, not all who say to be Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> but only the ones that do the works of the will of my Father. Well, why did he go and say that? <laughs> it doesn't mean works are the only thing, certainly, but they are important. And then the second kind of thing about this text that, that, that this, that's so curious about the sheep and the goats thing, is that the people themselves that are being separated don't seem to know who they are. He's pushing the sheep on one end and the goats on the other, and they don't seem to know why they're being picked that way. And even when he tells them, hey, you're sheep or you're goats, they're surprised, which tells me that we shouldn't be so quick to look at each other and determine whether we're sheep or goat. Because we don't, I, I, don't th I think we only see each other in bits and pieces. And then we don't, see, we don't see the whole of a person's life. Some of you, have, if we looked at you closely 15 years ago, you're definitely a goat. <laughs> Some of you used to be wonderful when you were younger, now you're old goats. <laughs> so we don't see you. We only see you in certain contexts, you know, at church or at work or when you're under stress or whatever. And you can't, God sees the whole of a person. He's the only one that can really tell. So get your judgment off. You should just be, that's why Jesus said one time, he used the analogy of saying, look, at the, 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 when they said, hey, there's some problems in the midst of these, you know, the people, and Jesus used the example saying, don't try to pull out the problems because the wheat and the tares must grow together until the harvest. Don't judge people. You don't know people well enough to judge them. And not only is that true, this is even more disconcerting. I don't think we can judge ourselves. I mean, the truth of the matter is sometimes I think, you know, I should be able to look at myself and with some self-inspection determine what I am, but when I really examine myself, what I discover is that I'm sheepy and goaty. <laughs> I got the double deal going on. So let me end my talk here with two little applications of what you do with this. And the first is recognize that with this business of good works, that the best you can do with it is just come to God with your mixed upness. 
Uh, anybody ever see this kind of praying? Put your hands together like this, like you're praying. Most of you don't do this. You know why you don't do this? Look, look at it. It's ridiculously pious. Right? Nobody prays like this. But, but uh, when our kids were little, they used to do the um, uh, taekwondo. And when they did their matches, you know, they'd come together and they would bow to each other and they'd do this. And I remember asking, what, what is that about? You know, what's going on? And, and, and the guy told me, I don't know if everybody thinks this, but the guy told me, you know, this is the place where the, we bring our good and our bad, our strength and our weakness, our focus and our inability to focus. Every part of us comes into this match. And I've thought, what a beautiful analogy. So I actually do this when I pray. So this, I'll, I'll, usually when I'm alone, because it looks ridiculously pious. So, so, but I'll do that. When I, and when I'm doing, I'm doing when I do this, I say, God, here I come. I'm bringing the good and I'm bringing the bad. I'm bringing the light and I'm bringing my darkness. I'm bringing the ways in which I have faith and all the ways that seems to have pervasive doubt. I'm bringing my running at you and my tendency to, to wander from you. I'm bringing it all right here. I think there's something very powerful about not trying to pretend you're perfect when you go to God. And I think it's wonderful to remember that you can have confidence in his mercy. The great old prayer that says his, that, that one of his, the very, very the nature of God is to have mercy. There's an old quote by J.I. Packer, which I just love. Quote, listen to it. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself, end quote. See, come to God as you are. Don't fake. Come with your stupid and your smart your sheepishness and your goatishness. And then lastly, I always try to do a version of the Ignatian examine, the Ignatian examine, Google it, Ignatian examine. And what it is is a basic series of questions that you can do at the end of a day or the end of a week or end of a period of time. And these are the questions that can help you try to sense where you are and what's going on in your soul. And these are the questions, there's five quick ones. One. As you look at the period of time you're dealing with, like today, let's pretend it's we're dealing with today and it's tonight and today's great. Where did I sense God today? And reflect. You may not sense anything, but just be honest about that. I don't think I sensed you at all. Or I think I sensed you when this happened. Second question, as you think through your day, what am I thankful for? Could be just something as simple as being alive or your health, or the people who you love and who love you, or health, or our nation, or the influence that you have, or the provision, whatever it is, find things to be thankful about and just sit for a moment and thanks. Question three, what was going on today in my emotions, or yesterday and today, or this week? When was I open? When was I distracted? When was I challenged? When was I energized? When was I angered? And then number four is choose one aspect of the day or the period of time that you know you were acting in a way that was less than human. 
It might have been a moment where you were confronted. It might be a situation where you were disappointed. Whatever it is, let it come to mind. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And when you find a place where you think you were less than human, bring that to God knowing he forgives you. Confess it and ask him to guide you into strength so you don't steer into that place over and over again. And then the last question is, who do I want to be tomorrow? What do I want to feed and what do I want to starve? So here's what I'm saying this morning. First, you matter. What you do matters. And you are a mix of sheep and goat. So up your sheepness, resist your goatness. Amen.